Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. sketch and character comedy. My name is Alex Lynch. In this show, I chat to writers and performers from the world of sketch and character comedy, find out what made them venture into it, talk about their characters, maybe meet some of their characters, and generally just shoot the breeze and, more importantly, have a laugh. My special guest for episode 21 is the writer-director Dipak Patel. Hello. Hello. 21. Wow. Yeah. I feel like I should have got you a card or yeah. a cake. <laughs> You're 21st. It's an adult now. <laughs> yeah. What do people do when they're 21? That well, I was going to uh, say, like, we could go drinking, but that's America. Uh, we could have gone oh, yeah, drinking we... back in episode 18. Oh, so. Damn it. Oh, <laughs> teetotal. Though. We're already giving up. We're in rehab. <laughs> We're going teetotal. Um, so yes, thank you for joining me, episode twenty-one, and also as our first director Ooh. of the series. Wow! Yeah, that doesn't feel daunting at all. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like uh, the pressure's on. Dipak, what's it like being a director of comedy? It's it's <laughs> good because, or well, usually it's good because it means I get to hide behind a protective shield. And judge other people, uh, whereas this this right here is actually quite terrifying for me because uh, I I yeah who's directing me I'm, I'm gonna have to trust you to yeah guide me through it karma baby yeah I know it's like <laughs> my worst fear is that I'll do this and then not <laughs> not come across as intelligent or funny or knowing what I'm on about at all and it will undermine any value I have as a director so um. Sink or swim. <laughs> and how productive have you been during lockdown? I've not been making any sketches since the pandemic because I had a baby. And so while other people were kind of, you know, becoming more productive and prolific with the downtime, I was just like, ah, <laughs> nappies, poo, formula. And I'll... Yeah. And what about the baby? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um... <laughs> But like, yeah, so <laughs> sorry. Uh, you, you found my level. You found my level, so that's a good start. Um, yeah, so I've, I've basically, as soon as I felt like I had all that baby stuff under control, I was just like waiting for the pandemic to end so I can like start making stuff again. And that obviously took ages. Um, so like listening to your podcast was just really really good just to kind of get my brain back into writing mode and kind of hearing all of this advice from like great people so like um yeah just re- like because it because it is a muscle isn't it like mm. writing and like um if you if you've not done it for a while you can you know get a bit rusty so yeah that was that was 
great and really inspiring. Oh, I'm glad. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, that's my favourite bit of um, doing sketches is working with performers because, you know, you can write a sketch and then you'll have a voice in your head or like you'll, you'll write something and you're like, okay, this is how it should sound to me. But once, once you start rehearsing, it's sometimes that goes out of the window. It, it depends on the performer. Sometimes mm. you can say, oh, this is how I imagined it. Can you, can you do that? Um, but other times you just want to kind of see what naturally comes out from the performer, what choices they're making. And then it's your job to go, okay, how does, how does that balance with, the other characters and the overall premise of the sketch. Is it appropriate? Is it not? Yeah. I mean, I think that is the tightrope as a director, especially as a writer director, is towing that line between, okay, this is what I've written. This is what the game plan is. But then also being open to input from other people. Because like, um, when I write something... I'm convinced it's complete garbage. Yes. Kirsty Mann, who I produce a lot of sketches with, um, sometimes has to drag me kicking and screaming <laughs> to commit to actually shooting an idea because I'll, I'll send her a bunch of scripts and she's like, oh, this, this one's good. No, that one won't work. And like, yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm, co- I'm confident in my abilities, but I don't, I don't assume that everything I write is going to be perfect and i just see it as a kind of blueprint and then on the day when you like if you do read throughs if you do rehearsals things can change they evolve um same when you shoot same when you get to like the edit you might uh, like cut things out completely so i don't see the script as being you know a precious text that can't be altered in any way and i think that's maybe where i struggle with directing other people's work or even sometimes working with other people on the writing side is I'm, I'm far too polite and I feel like yeah. the writer may take offence if a certain percentage of the script has gone out the window or like a certain line has gone out the window. Towing that line between having a plan and having enough room to play is... Because like mm. one of my role models or heroes is like Edgar Wright. He always gets asked in films, like particularly around like the Cornetto trilogy, like... Oh, is there a lot of improvisation in your films? Because, like, you know, they're really funny. So it must, they must, they must be improvised. Because all of that humour couldn't have possibly have been scripted. And um, he says, "No, no, it's all pretty much down to like, tea. They're, like, you know, yeah, there might be things that come up in rehearsals or read-throughs, but you know, everything is quite particular and precise. And you can tell that with his work because it's it's not like say." Uh, a Judd Apatow film where it, like the scenes are just basic coverage. Yes. Let uh, point your camera at the person, let it roll, let them improvise, and then we'll cut to together. There's a lot of improv in Judd Apatow's stuff. Yeah, isn't there? And like, yeah, it does. It does have its its merits. Um, but like, you know, I'm very much team Edgar Wright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. script is one thing, but then on top of that, he kind of layers in, you know, interesting staging and blocking and. It's subtle sometimes, like because I think the main thing Edgar Wright seems to be known for is like, oh yeah, whip pans and whooshes and fast cuts and montages. Mm. But like, if you just watch scenes between characters just in a room or in one place, like the staging is great. Obviously, he's got the um, 
the clout and the name to be able to, and he's got the track record to be able to, you know, prescribe yeah. to the T how he wants to do things. Um, whereas, you know, when you're just making sketches on YouTube for free um, on nothing but the goodwill of performers, I think you have to be a bit more open. Yeah, yeah. Because they have to get something out of it. They're not benefiting from it financially, so they might as well benefit from it creatively. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of informed a lot of my sketches. Mm. I've got this very tedious rule that I try to stick to of keeping sketches down to two pages. And some people find it very frustrating, (laughs) you know, because I grew up making short films and they were often kind of like I was obsessed with narrative structure and character arcs and so like my scripts would basically follow whatever trajectory uh, the plot needs to go on to get a character from A to B and often that would mean oh multiple locations multiple scenes yes. multiple you know I'd shoot these short films and that you know they were they were good for my age and for the time but like you're like <laughs> when you're when you're trying to cram in a certain number of locations and scenes it comes at a cost time and money and for all of these short films that I was making yeah my cinematography was crap my actual ability of directing talent was crap because I was trying to check off loads of setups I was just getting people to read outlines as quickly as possible so I could then move on to the next thing um oh I see yeah so yeah, eventually I started doing sketches because I, like, I remember asking a producer at the BBC, like, oh, what do you look for in a director? And he was like, I don't want a director who tells me what lenses we need. And so I just want someone who can direct talent, like knows how to work with actors. Um, and I kind of, that kind of stuck with me. So I started, ah. okay, instead of doing short films where I have to stretch myself, I was like, okay, let's try and do scenes set in one place and try and keep them to two actors yep because actors are hard to cast yeah like for free like and to schedule yeah i was gonna say yeah yeah Yeah, it's that's the hardest uh thing so like drama and comedy at its very simplest is you know two people butting heads a protagonist and antagonist yeah someone wants something the other person is the foil or the obstacle. Mm. Over the years, I've gotten into this. I only do two-page scripts that are two-handers, just because, and and they have to be in locations that I've got access to already. That there's no time restraints on. Yeah, a lot of obstacles there, and if, especially if you're like if you're trying to do it the legal way. Yeah. So, I can then actually work with actors. So we've got time. So when Kirsty and I make sketches, they're hopefully very, you know, laid back, easy days. Similar to you, first short film I did, I set it in five different outdoor locations. One of them was in Finsbury Park and I tried to go to Islington Council, but they don't like fun. No, (laughs) most councils don't. Yeah, the things I'm interested in are, well, I mean, sometimes it's to my detriment that I don't go for more ambitious locations. But, like, I'm kind of interested in staging 
a scene or specifically a sketch like i, I love little power battles yeah. and using physical blocking to tell the story of the sketch yes when you don't have any limitations on your time you've got the time to explore and find those things so i intentionally try to make things as short as possible so i've got the time in the day with the performers to figure that out experiment with it um and also adds you know get their input on the scripts mm. i'm not a performer and i am in awe of people who are because and people who do improv because i can't just come up with stuff off the top of my head in front of people or when on camera i freeze so you know for me the process of cutting jokes allows me to kind of the jokes that i've cut can go into a bank that i just keep mentally in my head so that when we are rehearsing a sketch yeah and blocking it out if it feels appropriate i can go okay can you try throwing this line in and uh, to the performer, it just seems like I've come up with this funny line off the top of my head. But actually, no, I slaved over it for quite a, quite a few hours. <laughs> um, editing your scripts to be super tight and killing your babies is sometimes good for that as well. Mm. Um, just having those extra gags and those lines. And you know that they won't affect the overall structure of the sketch too much. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also just about having that trust with your collaborators. Never underestimate what actors can do oh yeah it's not even like oh the ability to come up with funny lines or jokes sometimes it's just a reaction the best thing a performer can do for their director or director editor as is the case with me is fucking provide some like good reactions like actually like don't just stand there don't stand still while your scene partner is uh, like doing their line actually react yes in character because sometimes you need those reactions when you're like trying to tighten up a, like a line of dialogue in the edits and you need something to cut to and sometimes those reactions in themselves are the punchline just because you don't have the joke that line of dialogue that doesn't mean you're not getting the laugh. Yeah. Sometimes the laugh comes from, like the line in the joke in isolation isn't what's funny. It's the other character's reaction or response to it Yeah. that gets the laugh. That's the other reason why I try to keep the scripts short is so, you know, you've got the room for that, whether it's reactions, non-verbal, or physical, like uh, performances or, yeah, ad-libbed lines. Yeah. Performers bring it to light. Like, oh my God, like the... The people I've been fortunate to work with are like, amazing because, you know, like I said, I write something, I assume by default it's garbage because <laughs> for some reason <laughs> my confidence levels aren't through the roof. And then like, <laughs> a skilled performer just turns it into like gold dust or, like, they, or they take a line that wasn't meant to be funny and find a way to, to like to make it f- like funny how somebody sometimes interprets something where you're just like i never in a million years would have thought to do it in that way or to approach a character in that way Mm. and it's really wonderful and i think it's again it's a testament to you as a being again a good collaborator because it's so easy you know you get rights where people do try and do something different they're like no 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 can you do it how it's how i've you know 
done it, please. And I think there's a danger in that um, you become too precious and too bogged down in it. You need to step back and have someone look at it with a just a new angle, a new angle. But also part of the job is sometimes you have to, like there are points where you have to stick firm. Basically, you want to try and accommodate as much as you can if someone has a suggestion. Yeah. If you've got the time to do it, if it doesn't impact the shots or means you need an extra uh, extra setup or it affects like lighting or sound or anything, get it. Get it in the can. Yeah. Sometimes it may impact the overall direction of the sketch. You try and get it anyway, or but sometimes you do have to like have those like discussions, almost little passive aggressive negotiations of, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. is a good idea or original tip, but like we've only got half an hour left of the day. Yeah, and, it, um, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's any relationship really. It's, but it, it, it's it's good because you know, sometimes you work with talent that you've worked with regularly or uh, like often, and you've got like a shorthand or like you haven't worked with them often, but their cues and their instincts are bang on, and they're exactly what you had in mind or better. And um, yeah, sometimes you're working with people that you've never worked with before. And you just don't know because every performer is different and it's, it's an important skill to have to be kind of like nimble and um, and to adapt. Yeah. If you had to be isolated with any TV comedy character, who would it be? I was very tempted to say Tina Fey, Liz Lemon. Liz Lemon for the third time. Well, okay, the third but, time in the series. I'm not going to go for that because <laughs> other guests have brought up a very interesting point, which is thinking about it contextually. The question was, who do you want to be locked down with, right? Yes. So there has to be some practical benefit. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether it's because we're trying to get loads of building work done in our house and having no luck with good builders, but I was thinking <laughs> Tim the Tall Man Taylor from home improvements oh my god it's, i'm not yes like, i wouldn't even say i'm a massive fan of the show i think I, I loved it as a child but like i think he might drive me mad but he would he would get shit done he would get walls knocked down that i wanted like knocked through he would get like build me a bookcase he'd get so much done and then once the pandemic's over he can go off to where go see his family <laughs> and i can reap the rewards of uh his free manual labour. Oh, I love it. Do you know, I mean, I can't even remember what kind of a character he is. It's been so long ago <laughs> since I saw that show. I think all I remember is going, oh, 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 oh. I remember him and his mate being like, it's tool time. Yeah. And, uh, and he had a neighbour called Wilson who you only ever yeah, saw over, over a fence. fence. So just eyes yeah. and a hat. That's great. That's a very practical choice. It is, yeah. I, I <laughs> I'm very, I'm very obsessed with uh, interior design at the moment, but I have none of the practical skill or energy or money to do any of it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I'm championing Tim, Tim the Tall Man Taylor all the way. How did you get into comedy? How did you get into all this? Um, 
What was the kind of starting point? I got into comedy, uh, I guess unknowingly, as a teenager. I was just, uh, me and my friends just made short films and videos in school. We weren't intentionally trying to make comedy, but the videos that we made were felt like little celebrities around the school because like there was no youtube at the time you would just make these little yeah. crap videos and then burn it to not even dvds vcds <laughs> amazing i think initially it was also vhs tapes <laughs> and like they would just get passed around like the school i remember at like, one point there was like a dvd no a vcd had somehow ended up in like a local like girls secondary school we were in secondary school at the same time that doesn't it's not creepy um and like <laughs> suddenly like we had a fan following from like as like, every teenager's dream like oh we've got this fan following from like a school of people we don't even know i mean i didn't because i was always behind the camera it was always like oh my friends who were in front of the camera i was like oh damn it but like um <laughs> yeah that's how i got into making video even that was by accident i somehow managed to get hold of a really cheap video camera from my parents because i said mm. oh i'm i'm interested in doing kind of like uh media studies because i'm quite good at drawing and i did some storyboards in english and uh, i might give it a go really i just wanted a video camera so me and my friends could make wrestling videos in uh in their garden <laughs> and then we tried to make one and we realized we we're really bad this is really like just oh cringe and uh, we just started dicking around with it instead um yeah and then yeah i've just carried on making short videos since and then went to uni studied film started working in production eventually got a job at bbc comedy as a pa oh yeah uh, for six months and i was the worst pa in the world because <laughs> i don't know how to manage someone's diary i struggle with mine uh but like i could <laughs> i could shoot i could self-shoot and edit and um like I was working with the, uh, what's it called? The online comedy team. So that kind of opened up a lot of doors in terms of um, being able to help out on projects, sometimes being able to like direct things and like working with loads of different comedians and producers and writers. And um, yeah, and then eventually I, I left, went freelance and yeah, continue to make comedy with comedians and funny funny performers yeah and the stuff you did for bbc comedy um you didn't write that but you shot it right yeah so i like i was nowhere near the level that i would have had to have been to have had the stuff i wrote written like it was um and well it was also kind of interesting it was a very interesting learning curve because when i worked at bbc comedy i was quite young I mean I'm only in my mid-30s now but at the time it was my early 20s yeah and I was such an entitled little snotty brat because <laughs> I wanted to be a director and I was just like yeah oh, I should be directing everything why and like you don't know what you don't know until you've learned it so I felt like I was I was shit hot I was up and coming talent I should be directing everything yeah the girl the girls at that other school liked it yeah what like we've got an audience there we've got a market let's tap into this um but like you know it was I I, I did learn a lot but I felt I, I could have learned more if I just shut my mouth and opened my <laughs> eyes and ears because like I didn't realize how much of comedy or the comedy industry is about talent development yeah and particularly the on on-screen talent like I know it's uh it annoys a lot of writers that like that's the that's the hierarchy of um 
talent. Yeah, but it is. Writers are so far down the pecking order. Yeah. And like, I, I didn't realise when I was working in-house at BBC Comedy, mm. my job was to find talent, on-screen talent, and even writers, and nurture them. And I, I wanted to just be the superstar director. Like, you know, my role model was Edgar Wright. I wanted to yeah. write and direct. And that was like, and I, I love films and I love directors. So like, in my head, oh, the director is king and the most valuable piece of the puzzle. But, uh, you know, as you mature and get older, you realize, oh, that ain't, <laughs> that ain't the case. And um, I didn't realize that at the time. Um, but now I do, so that's fine. And uh, kind of, it's it makes you a better director as well once you learn that, because you're like, yeah. okay, you're like my job is to make everyone else look good. My job <laughs> is to make the performer look great. My yeah. job, like even even with like writer, if I if stuff changes, mm. as long as if it makes the writer look good, if a line of dialogue changes in that, that's you don't want to do a disservice to the people that are giving up their time to collaborate with you. Uh, what's that saying the old a rising tide lifts all boats um yeah so i've gone completely off tangent <laughs> no mate it, never it's 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 really interesting it's i think like as you say that kind of thing of like in your early 20s you do of course everyone felt that kind of i should be doing my thing you know it's yeah. you don't i'm the special don't, one yeah you don't have that understanding yeah it's 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 fascinating <laughs> how the ego <laughs> plays into um, oh, creativity. But like I said, luckily, because like, I was just like, oh my god, the amount of people I got to work with, that the amount of producers I got to work under, or writers I got to work with, and talent, and like people have gone on to become household names. Like it's like it was a really great opportunity. Um, I just wish I realised it at the time. But like, it's all informed how I work now and how I write or do direct or collaborate with people. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's all it's all part of the learning curve. Absolutely. I mean, I was looking at your um, website and the you know, sketches and everything you've done. And it's like, you've got such a great, um, all the people you've worked with are like, pretty big names now it's it's really exciting that like, i even saw you did um you did a bbc thing with jamila jamil oh yeah that was completely just random like she was hosting yeah like, an edinburgh uh bbc's edinburgh show tent or something and like um i think we just wanted to shoot a video with her and um i got to like pitch a couple of ideas like to a producer and then we took the best ones to Jamila and she like threw her like two cents and added lines here and there and then um like it was very lo-fi but like it was yeah that was cool like and yeah to think now she's I know it's... massive I mean, well, she, she was still doing sort of like T4 and stuff at the time wasn't yes, she yes because actually that was the premise of the um the the sketch um because she she mm. was co-hosting this live comedy show with Chris Ramsey Chris Ramsey's a stand-up. Yes. Everyone else on the bill was a stand-up. Yeah. Jamila Jamil was not known for comedy per se. She was a presenter and was funny, but she was known for presenting. So that was the that was the premise of the sketch was she's travelled up to Edinburgh thinking she's going to be performing live comedy and this producer's having to yeah. tell her, Oh no, we just we just want you to 
present and uh, introduce people. So, but I've written, I've written all of this material. What was, what was the point? Let, let me read some of the material to you. And then she just does all of these awful jokes. Right, what about the differences between white people and black people? Really? This is the BBC. What do the leper say to the prostitute? What do the terrorists say to the apricot? What's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Kidding. Too far. It's the art of the invisible, like much like like good editing or like good visual effects. If you do your job right, no one will notice that you're there, which is really fucking annoying because if you're trying to get work or get paid for it, like <laughs> you make other people look <laughs> flawless. But um you know, yeah. it is it is gratifying when when you work with really talented people and you're in a very privy position to see their performance at the start of a rehearsal and then their performance after it's been recorded and in the can and edited and you know a lot of it is down to their talent but also it's down to your kind of like guidance and input as well and you know even if people don't notice yeah it it's quite gratifying for yourself to know oh okay i can i can make a difference or like i could like yeah i I help get them to that place deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jenny Beads. Yeah. How did that sort of uh, partnership sort of establish itself? I met Jenny working on a a Dawson Brothers pilot, which also was oh my god! If you talk about sitting under a learning tree, oh yeah, like that that was amazing because at, at the time I was just a researcher uh, for BBC Comedy, and the exec that I was working for was producing uh, Dawson Brothers F- Fun Time, a BBC Free pilot, and. Um, Oh my god, the cast was brilliant. It was Chris Kendall, Carrie Ed Lloyd, Mike Wozniak, Jenny Bede. Amazing. Uh, the Dawsons were writing on it, a massive writer's room. And I was allowed to go on set, but my production coordinator said I had to have a role. I said, oh, well, can I not just be like a researcher on the production? Like what my actual job is? Like, no, no, we have to kind of justify the cost. So you have to be allocated to a department. Um, I was like... <laughs> okay so what department she's like well what do you want to do I, was like, I don't know what I want to do she was like what do you want to go into what do you want to become and then we'll just put you as a 
and a junior role in that department. I was like, well, I want to direct. But obviously, an assistant director isn't like an AD is its own job. Yeah, exactly. It's not quite, it's not just being another director. Yeah. And like, really, I just wanted to be, because Al Campbell was directing. So I just wanted to be as close to set as possible to kind of just like view i was like i would i would have just made him coffee i would have just done coffee runs yeah i I had to have a position so they put me down as like a camera assistant and oh god i I feel sorry for the dop because i was probably like the worst like it wasn't like i was trying to be lazy or i just I, i i didn't know what to do like it was a any other aspiring camera person would have it would have been a great opportunity for them but like for me because i just wanted to be like I wanted to see what the dynamics were. I wanted like because the Dawson brothers, like all three of them were on set. It was just fascinating to watch how they worked. Like I got to sit in one of the writing rooms, or one of the writers' rooms, and that was fascinating to see as well because I'd never seen that. I I like I didn't know how a sketch show was put together, let alone one with a whole team of writers. So that was cool to observe. Um, so. Yeah, I got to like, it was nice. I got to have a lot of close proximity to some very talented like people. And then that's how I met Jenny. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long after that or how many years after that, like, after I'd left the BBC, she was uh, doing a music video with Kirsty. Who That's how I met Kirsty. Um, it was a Downton oh, right. parody yeah. and uh, they needed a director and all the good ones were obviously busy and i got the call the day before are you free to come to this giant mansion in the countryside somewhere and uh shoot this for us um which i did and that's how yeah i kind of that's how i started then doing a couple more like music videos for jenny and uh, that's how i met kirsty and started doing more sketches I, i met a lot of people through jenny bead actually like brendan murphy who i love yeah uh, he's such a, he's like gold he's so funny he's uh, his bagman show oh uh, yeah i loved that i can give him anything and he can turn that mm. into kind of like and he can his range is so good like he can play the everyman he can play super intelligent he can play an idiot he can play like anything i give villain. him villain yeah. he could like he, he does it and he's charming, and even when he's playing a dick, he's he's likable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Michelle's another one who's great with that as well. Michelle Fahrenheim. Yeah, yeah. So good, and like uh, the like the first thing I did with her was a sketch called Health Kick that she had written. Oh, which is terrific. Yeah. Oh, thank That's you. Such a good one. That. Yeah, Kirsty like kind of was like, yeah, do you want to do this? And I'm like, yeah, and um, I think my main contribution was kind of adding this dynamic of because it was a sketch of like one-upmanship. And my main thing was, okay, someone needs to lose. If it's a power struggle, someone needs to be on the back foot. And as I said before, when I first started making videos, it was because I wanted to make wrestling videos because I loved wrestling. And like, so like a lot of my sketches kind of go through that filter of like, okay, it's two people. The audience needs to boo someone and cheer for the other person. <laughs> One person needs to be oh, likeable. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the you know, same way like sketches and comedy needs morality like mo- like people who don't like wrestling don't like wrestling because they don't care about what's happening on screen but if you it, a good wrestler will get you kind of like 
involved a good heel a good villain will make you hate them and then by proxy like the good guy so you're invested in seeing them go back and forth until one of them wins or doesn't and like i i I kind of apply that to sketches a lot as well who wins this sketch like do they both lose is it a draw does one of them win does one of them think they're about to win and they lose yeah that's the main thing i wanted to instill in that sketch was because on in on paper it was just one character brags about something the other character brags back and then they brag and then they brag and then they brag and i was like <laughs> like i wanted to add a dynamic of michelle's character says something yes kirsty then tries to like we tried to design it so kirsty's character was the one that the audience relates to yes and is trying to join in with michelle's conversation but michelle keeps upping the ante yeah and like so in the sketch Kirsty's probably a bit more shirty than Michelle is, mm. but she's the good guy. And Michelle is playing the sketch as like, if you just stumbled upon the conversation without really listening, you would feel, you would think Michelle's character is like, oh, she seems like a really nice, friendly person, but actually she's the one who's being a dick. No, she's very kind of sickly sweet. Yeah. It's insipid. Yeah. <laughs> and then Kirsty's playing like kind of, you know, she's a, a salty or getting kind of annoyed. But yeah. it's a relatable quality. I hope you're not overtraining. I hope you're getting enough protein. Oh, yeah, I have like two protein shakes after every workout. Well, I prefer to get my protein from natural products. Oh, same. I'm on like a chicken a day. Well, I'm on a cow a day. Higher iron content. Higher fat content. So I watched um, that Valentine's one you did with Brendan, oh. which was really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was, that was a really nice experience, actually, because I... You know, I say like, oh, I just assume that everything I write by default is garbage. Yes. (laughs) Especially when I kind of like, I worked at like BBC Comedy. Like, I don't think it did a great deal for my kind of confidence as a writer because I would always hear the word no. And obviously that's because I'm just some kid in his mid-twenties going, oh, I've written this. Can we make this? I've written this. What about this? And like... Of course, none of it's going to get made, like, because I'm an idiot and I'm not (laughs) there yet. But like, um, so I think it kind of deflated my confidence in myself as a writer. And then I got this contract working for BBC Worldwide and the producer that I was working under was this really nice guy called Lee Bacon. And he actively wanted me to write content. And, you know, this was working on a, a YouTube channel. So it was very different to when I worked for BBC Comedy Online because when I worked for BBC Comedy Online and they had a YouTube channel, people at the BBC didn't really know what to do with a YouTube channel because it was quite, it was very new. Like, no, like people didn't know, like producers, other producers didn't want to necessarily get involved because they were like, well, well, I want to make a three or five minute is it pronounced YouTube? YouTube? YouTube video? <laughs> when I could be making TV with a much bigger budget. Um, and we were still trying to figure out what the channel was. It was supposed to be kind of like a development playground for talent to be able to nurture them and kind of test out ideas uh, without having to commit financially. But then there was also the pressure of like, oh, stuff has to be viral and it has to be Course, gain loads yeah. of views. And the two things are diametrically opposed. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, sometimes they're not. The, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, 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 general, know, yeah. And, uh, and, and BBC comedy, you had at the like TV and radio, and then online was the bastard stepchild that was kept in the the cellar because they didn't know what the hell it was. Um, yeah, and like eventually, it, uh, when BBC Three, I think, went online, the the YouTube channel got taken under their wing and. Yeah, they at, at that time they didn't know. We didn't really know what it was, and other people didn't necessarily understand what it, like what you could do with it. But then when I went to work for BBC Worldwide, yes, they were completely digital. They were a digital huh. department, and their whole thing was YouTube. They were ahead of the curve. Yeah, they were like we want to do content that addresses the audience. It breaks the fourth wall. Yeah, so it was kind of like a completely different way of. Uh, producing and writing comedy because you could write more like, I guess sort of editorials yes like Lee yes. said okay well, Valentine's Day is coming up let's do something on that we did a little brainstorm amongst the team and I was like okay what's interesting about Valentine's Day and um, uh, someone in the team kind of had this really interesting observation about how Valentine's Day it's you know marketed as this gushy romantic loving day yeah. but the roots of it are quite really bloody <laughs> and yeah yes, brutal yeah. and i was like oh, okay that's an interesting concept and so i got to kind of go away just research the origins and the concept of valentine's day and got to write a nice little basically just a factual piece and then insert jokes the roman men who were quite resourceful would then use the animal hides to whip the women <laughs> sort of like if christian gray opened an abattoir and the women loved it apparently they would line up to get spanked because they thought it would improve their fertility now you have to remember this was at a time where women's life options were limited to childbirth and putting the dinner on not like today where women are free to pursue a career in any job they want for less money than a man. It's really insightful. It's got a horrible history to think about it. I was going for a phase of, I was really getting into um, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and The Daily Show yes. with Trevor Noah. And I loved that they were essentially just people behind a desk in front of a camera talking straight to the audience. It was a bit more like stand-up, but the pieces were informative and they had a point that they wanted to make, like an informative point. Yeah. And that basically dictates the structure. The same way in a sitcom, you try and come up with a, a narrative structure and story yes. to pin and hang the jokes off of. Same with a sketch. You try and come up with a, a game or a premise to then tell jokes through. This was just, yeah, just tell, give information to the audience, pepper it with jokes. And that's sort of a, what they wanted us to do with this uh, YouTube channel so that was like yeah that was fun because I've never done anything like that and I got recommended a really good book by uh, Rob Broderick which everyone seems to have had some sort of yeah that's very funny that it's almost like a uh, he's the core holy moment <laughs> of like uh, when did you first discover oh get touched by God when I got that job at BBC Worldwide and like I said oh this is the sort of stuff they want me doing yes he was like oh, you should read this book, uh, Comedy Bible by Judy Carter. He was like, I think it will really help you with coming up with ideas. And like, I read it and oh, I blew my mind. Like it is predominantly about like stand up and live comedy. But like the book basically kind of teaches you that 
okay, to tell a joke or a funny bit, you have to come up with a premise that's straight. It's not funny. It's an observation yes. or an opinion or an idea you have that is grounded in reality. And then you use that as a springboard to do something silly or ludicrous. But the uh, the premise has to be grounded in reality so people relate to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that kind of obviously helped me because, like, okay, if you're making web comedy, it has to resonate with an audience. This is how you do it. But also this exercise of uh, mining your own opinions and ideas and experiences, writing them down and then seeing if they overlap with a wider audience. And it's that kind of empowerment of like, oh, actually, good comedy isn't something you have to try and find or sit or reset. It's, it's actually just mining your own brain. It's within you. That's fascinating. Yeah, because like, oh, I'd love to be able to be the sort of person that kind of gets up on stage and does stand up based on ideas and opinions and observations they have. But I think for me, that's what sketch comedy is. If I've got an observation, I turn it into a sketch. Yeah, that book really helped. It's kind of like what this podcast it's the same effect. It's very educational. I love a good health kick. Mm, I love a good health kick. Have you ever directed live comedy? The closest thing I've done to live comedy is um, this show called Mortified. Oh, yes. It started off in the US as a live show mm-hmm. where people got up on stage and read extracts from their childhood diaries, their most embarrassing childhood oh diaries. God. Or they might share plays that they've written, artworks, songs, oh, like, brilliant. whatever. <laughs> and it's it kind of took off from there. It's It's gone all around the world. Oh, wow. It was a fascinating experience because I've never done anything live. Mm-hmm. And it was almost kind of like doing a documentary live. I mean, I, oh, like, yeah. I've, I've done kind of factual or documentary stuff in film but not live so like because these people who are going up on stage yes. are just regular people we get a lot of performers we, uh, Susan Harrison did um, did one did she? yeah 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 <laughs> she was great oh, I bet that was good and Kirsty. Kirsty's done oh, one too nice we do get a lot of performers mm. but generally it's, it is just regular people and their diary readings or whatever it is they've like created as a child they are, they are all authentic um but the pieces are produced and curated. Like we'll, we'll hold auditions where people will come with their, we'll call them artifacts. Yeah. Sometimes it might be a letter. Sometimes it might be diary upon diary. So I was a story editor for the for the London show. Oh, so people would come and audition uh, in front of like me and the other story uh, producers. Uh-huh. And um, they would just be sharing these intimate embarrassing details from their childhood and we would have to try and find a 10 minute piece that works like we'd have to identify okay what was funny in that in whatever they created is there a pattern is there a story a narrative we can carve out of that and yeah it's a a fascinating experience because it kind of the show had to be funny Mm. like it had to also be like heartwarming yeah and endearing but it but it had to get laughs of course and and like we ran the shows out of uh, the Leicester Square Theatre and um oh it, it was great it was just it was amazing kind of seeing stuff that even though they were based on diary entries that other people had written yes you would be structuring 
the piece. Oh, and the wow. And the story. And it's almost a bit like kind of psychotherapy for the participants because <laughs> you'd, you'd be like, oh, I noticed in your diary you kind of like mention a lot of stuff about your dad that's quite negative. Did you have any uh, negative feelings towards them? Oh, oh wow. Um, uh, I don't think I did, but actually now upon reflection as an adult, it seems... Um, so, you know, we tried to kind of like create a story out of the actual truth but like that was the first time i've ever seen oh and would also like kind of because you'd be jumping from extract to extract yes yeah, yeah you yeah. need to kind of link them the format of the show is you have six acts each one is a different uh person and yeah they have to have an overall story so like um you had to establish who the person was what is it that they wanted as a child like desperately what was the reason they couldn't have it or what was in the way and what was their kind of silly or harebrained scheme that they came up with in vain to try and achieve their goal and then you kind of go through the entries that kind of show how the story escalates and then they either got what they wanted and then realized it wasn't important or it kind of ended disastrously and they didn't get what they wanted and but they learned something else and then kind of try and find a resolve as an adult based on their real life and um yeah it was it was really good fun that sounds great it was amazing like it was the first time i'd ever heard laughs from an audience of stuff that i've produced and and it was great to kind of see the laughs coming at exactly where you you wanted it that's brilliant because everything's done by design yes and it's just gratifying when it pays off because when i make sketches for the web mm. i'm not sat behind people or with them when they watch them that they know of <laughs> but like so you you never you never get that audience feedback that immediate, the immediacy yeah. yeah and like i imagine that's what it must be like when you do stand up or theatre or improv, like you know what works, yes, because you find out in real time by the you gauge it by the reaction. Um, but like the other thing that was great about that show was it wasn't just the power of getting laughs; it was getting the ahs, like getting like actual emotional reactions out of people. So you were kind of creating a sitcom every time, in a sense, like an episode of a sitcom almost. Yeah, little ten minute. Like they, they were proper stories. They were proper stories and they were real. They were com- yeah. completely authentic. We couldn't, that was one of the rules of the show. We can't make anything up. That's amazing. Getting that ah reaction was, um, I found really important for sketch comedy as well. Like, cause it's, I, I, empathy. Uh, what the big thing about like, when we did Mortified was these people who are getting up on stage, we can't make them look like dickheads, especially if they're not performers. Like maybe in their diary entries, they might sound like entitled, ungrateful dickheads (laughs) as a child or a teenager. But we as the producer have to kind of create a distinction between the two, uh, the performer reading it and the entries that they're reading, whether it's through their reactions and their winces to the things they've said or like the, uh, how they actually tee up the extract. But I find that's quite important in sketch comedy as well is empathy. Absolutely. Like, especially when I do two-handers, you have to give a shit about at least one of those characters. Yes, yeah. And usually it's the one who's the butt of the joke or the one who's suffering because otherwise it doesn't like work. No. 
I don't think. I think like yeah, the audience has to feel the pain of the straight man. Definitely. The final section of the podcast is change of character. This name has been given to you by Ellie White. Hit me. The name is Carol Clit. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay so who is carol clit i think that she is uh an nct teacher who has no no self-awareness of what her name is i think she's the most sweet pg <laughs> no she can't be like nct and be pg <laughs> you're throwing too many letters here oh, an acronyms <laughs> i'm like some sort of business guru uh, okay I, uh, oh okay I, okay, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with it. I'm gonna, she's, she's an NCT teacher. So she's in the natal world. Yeah, I, I think, I think Carol Clip probably has her own antenatal course that she calls, uh, Clitography. Clitography. That's the name she of it. Is have, it? She could have gone with something maybe a bit more like, um, kind of says what it does. Uh huh. With the name, but she's also a bit of an egomaniac. She needs to have her name on her eat like she could have gone with just something informative but she needed to get her name in there that brand awareness so she's gone for the art of clitography is she trying to sort of like when you say the word clit the first thing that comes to mind is oh carol <laughs> rather than the actual <laughs> yeah I, I i i think in her head she thinks the word clit is synonymous with carol rather than clitmus carols that's good that's good okay this is i could go with that at the end of her at the end of her antenatal course she runs a clitmus test with the parents that they have to pass and if they fail they get their baby taken away and they have to live with carol for like the rest of their life and they have to live with carol they have to live with carol well they they become employees of the art of clitography right um, i see yes maybe yeah. they run some of the classes maybe they just do like some of the admin like photocopying <laughs> like diagrams they're slaves is what you're saying <laughs> enforced child labor is one way of looking at it but i think the art of clitography legally are bound to go with uh, work experience or internship so she has harnessed a lot of children that aren't hers. Yes. Can she have children herself or is ah. this her reason for... Maybe, I, I imagine her as more of a, on the surface, she appears to be like a sweet granny. So she has had kids, Yeah. but they've all found her a bit overbearing. And I think she wanted the art of clitography to be a family business, but they're like... <laughs> Look, we've all changed our second names yeah. just to not be associated with the family name. The last thing we <laughs> want to do is be an employee of it. So I think she harbors a bit of resentment for that. Um, and so yeah. she basically takes these other children off of other parents who failed the Clitmus test as a way to kind of... Um, compensate has she spoken to her actual family since or has she kind of severed the ties no 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 no. because she um like she longs for that uh, reconciliation so they, they're still in contact like family occasions like christmas and birthday uh i think the relationship has become slightly less strained 
because she has now found an outlet like she's she's not as reliant on her ch- uh, her biological children to run this uh, art of clitography um so they're getting nagged less but the whole underlying agenda behind these family gatherings isn't to celebrate christmas or birthdays it's more so she can like show off and rub in their face i think she even invites some of these enslaved children to i was gonna say does she bring the children to christmas dinner it does make it kind of awkward because like they don't really know anyone and also they're forced into child slavery but um not technically slavery not uh yeah sorry uh opportunity opportunity (laughs) it's good exposure for them but like um yeah i think carol kind of hopes that deep down her biological children will get jealous and come back to her and you know for those for her actual children who do have lives of their own and successful careers and yeah better things to be doing there's that moral dilemma now of okay well i don't really want to have any involvement with the art of clitography but Oh, child slavery is bad, isn't it? So, mm. uh, am I complicit by uh, not? Uh, I don't know why they haven't the alerted the authorities. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this set in terms of location? Is this this isn't a city or is this countryside? Is it rural village? Either? Yeah, I think it has to be rural village. I think it's um, whatever the British equivalent of like some backwater American town is. It like. <laughs> Anything outside of London? I, my geography is not very good. I, I, I'm very, very London-based. Clearly. I just assume everything else is countryside, right? I know there's Scotland at the top bit. Do you mean like somewhere like the Cotswolds? That kind of oh, area. Yeah, actually, yeah. That is all yeah. very nice and photography in the Cotswolds. Oh, oh. that's like better than Tim the Tall Man Taylor. That's that's that is alliteration. Oh, I kind of feel like we have to leave it there. <laughs> I think we probably should. Yeah. The only thing left to ask about her is where does it kind of end? Has she achieved her goal? What's at the finish line? There, there's two things going on. One is her children they need to come back into her life as a healthy, positive presence. And I think they reluctantly decide for some reason or another that they should just help their mum out and become part of the business. It's kind of like the godfather, I think, in many ways. (laughs) The godfather of the Cotswolds. It's about the reluctant children taking on the family empire. But at the same time, she is so touched by them finally doing this for her, that she decides to just stop the business. Yeah. It's time to shut the doors. And maybe as she's about to, like, call it quits for good, she gets interest from uh, some sort of brand or third party who want to Mm. buy the rights to the art of clitography and it becomes huge. Mum's net. (laughs) (laughs) It's a prequel. (laughs) So basically the Batman begins and Mum's net. Um, Yeah, I think maybe someone sees the potential in the brand, buys it, she becomes a millionaire uh, and no longer has to put any pressure on the rest of the family to be involved with the business and they actually get to spend some time together as a family. 
The end. Aww. And you get that aww, aww. that you're always looking for. Aww. <laughs> They've set free the, the, the child slaves who are now adults <laughs> and missed an entire childhood. <laughs> That's so sweet. I like the way when everything just wraps up neatly and conveniently. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Can you please tell me the name you're going to pass on to my next guest? Yeah. How about Felipe 400? Who is Felipe 400? We shall find out on the next episode of Out of Character. In the meantime, Dipak, this has been a joy. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been it's been very fun. Yeah, well, I guess we look forward to your next set of sketches. Oh, shit, I should probably go. The pressure's on. Thanks very much. Bye! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.